pleasure to, uh, to celebrate Reformation Sunday. Happy Reformation Sunday, everyone. Not a day probably that is high up there as your favorite holiday, uh, but a day nonetheless that is important to us as a church. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the history of it, uh, the Reformation is that event um, headed up famously by Martin Luther, uh, who on October 31st, many, many years ago, nailed the 95 Theses to the door, uh, an attempt to try to bring reform to the Catholic Church, an attempt to make the gospel central to its teaching. Um, but of course, as a result to his actions and the actions of other heroes of the faith, people like John Calvin and Knox and others, we had the process of the Protestant Reformation, uh, an event that led to the birth of, of churches like our own, an event that held the gospel at its central or as its central focus. And as such, it's one of those events that perhaps we're not super familiar with, but it is essential to our identity. It's a reminder of who we are. But again, even if you're not familiar with that particular day, um, it is safe to assume, I think, we all understand that we have officially entered into this holiday season of the year, uh, this time of year in which it seems or feels as if we are perpetually planning for one holiday after another. It can be a bit stressful for us. And while there are your traditions in your house uh, may perhaps be a, a little different from my own, I trust all of us share one basic tradition that we love to follow, that tradition being eating, right? the, the time-honored tradition of eating. We love the meals that come with holidays, and, and I trust that most of you have very specific taste on those holidays. And so with Thanksgiving just over a month away, many of you can, can already tell me exactly what will be on your table. You know the specific side dishes, the specific entrees, you know what desserts have to be served, and you know this because, well... This is what you have to eat on Thanksgiving. Perhaps those of you who are married have experienced the conflict that can arise when you realize that some other pagan family doesn't eat the right thing on Thanksgiving. It can be very frustrating. We look forward to those meals on an annual basis because we understand that when we sit down on Thanksgiving or on Christmas and we gather around that dinner table, we're doing something that goes beyond just eating, aren't we? We are beholding a, a precious tradition to us. And as we sit down, we probably share the same stories that we share every year. We remember past holidays, past traditions. Those foods are a reminder, not simply of the holiday, but, but they're telling a story of who we are, of where we've been, where we're headed. At times, those meals are perhaps moments of great celebration for you. For many others, those meals bring great moments of bitterness as they can be reminders of the fact that Maybe life has not led up to the point that you hoped it would lead up to. Maybe your, your family's broken. Maybe you, you have a child who's left the faith. Whatever it is, those meals can also be painful. But regardless of whether they are painful or cause for celebration, they are significant events. They are a, a story that is being told. And since we understand that that process, that experience, we can perhaps understand the mindset that is at work here in Mark chapter 14. For as we enter into our text in Mark 14, verses 22 through 31, we find ourselves in a scene that very much revolves around two separate meals. Uh, meals that play a vital role in the life of the church. One meal being the meal of Passover, the second meal being that which is consecrated by Christ here in Mark 14. And my hope is that as we experience or as we examine this passage, we might not simply treat this passage as a, an instruction, as a manual on how to celebrate a certain meal, but we might see the story that stands behind these things. 
we might understand the rich symbolism that is at work both in terms of Israel but also more importantly in our own story. And as a result, might we walk away from today recognizing that really the greatest meal we eat isn't the meal we eat on Thanksgiving, it's not the meal we eat on Christmas, it's the meal that we enjoy every other week here at the chapel. It's the meal of communion. For that's the meal that reminds us of who we are. That's the meal that defines everything we have, past, present, and future. With that being said, let us begin our time by reading our text, Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 31. And then we will dig in and examine this first meal of Passover. If you would stand out of reverence for the word, we'll begin by reading this text. While they were eating, he, Jesus, took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said, this, and, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink of it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. This is the word of God. If you would sit down with me, not with me, sit down and bow your heads in prayer with me and we will begin our time. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for our opportunity this morning. God, what a precious reminder we've already been given of your grace, both in the songs that we've sang and the reminder that truly all we have is Christ, but also in the powerful testimony from our sister Molly and brother Alex. We thank you for the example they are of their faith in you. Thank you for the example they are, and they're willing to step before us as a church and to to proclaim the gospel and to to seek accountability from us, God. And might we respond in kind, might we act as their family. Might they be an inspiration to us and a reminder to the power of the gospel, for in the gospel we are given new life, God. As we examine the passage before us today, again, we have a beautiful and powerful picture of the gospel at work. And God, in this passage, we have two meals that no doubt many of us are already very familiar with, and so it would be easy to look past these words. But might that not be the case today, God? Might you cause us to read these words with fresh eyes? Might we read these words and enter into the story the same way the Israelites have entered into the story of the Passover for generations, the same way we as a church are called to enter into the story of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection every time we take part in communion? Might we enter into this story today? And in this story, might we find our identity? Might we be reminded of who you are? Might we be reminded of the certain hope that lies before us, God? God, you are so gracious to us. You are so good to us, God. Cause us to see that this morning. Be with those who are unbelievers this morning, God. Bring them to a saving faith in the picture of the gospel today. And might all this be done to your glory, to the praise of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things, amen. As we begin our time, we begin it, in essence, with, with a bit of review. For it's essential to appreciate the, the significance of the event that is taking place before us in this text. 
For as our text begins in Mark 14, verse 22, uh, the author mentions in passing that the disciples have gathered with Jesus to eat. They are gathering with Jesus to eat this meal. But of course, if you were with us last week, you understand this is not any insignificant meal. This is the meal. This is the defining story for every Israelite. The meal that they are celebrating, of course, is that of the Passover. And if you were with us last week, you will remember that the Passover came with it a, a very specific menu. This was not a potluck that, that anyone could just bring anything to. This, this meal had to follow a very specific order. It consisted of a variety of elements, namely the Passover lamb along with bitter herbs and salt water, along with unleavened bread and ultimately four cups of wine that would have been spread out throughout the evening. And at the beginning of this meal, at least in the family setting, it was common for the meal to begin with, with a child asking their father, Father, what is so special about tonight? What makes this night different from everything else? And responding to that story, the, the leader of the family would guide the individuals through the process of taking part of, of each of these elements. And as each element was tasted, the individual would then speak to the meaning of those elements. And each element had its own unique, very important meaning. Again, many of you are familiar with this, but it's worth repeating that the bitter herbs that were included in this meal that the disciples would have tasted was to remind you as an Israelite of, of the bitter rule of Pharaoh. It was to to bring you back to that ancient experience and remind you of, of where your people came from. As you tasted the Passover lamb, your mind was to go back to that Passover lamb, those famous animals, of course, that were ordered to be sacrificed back in Exodus. Those lambs whose blood was smeared on the doorpost so as to preserve your ancient brothers and sisters in Israel. As you tasted the unleavened bread, you went back to the hurried manner in which the Israelites had to flee out of Egypt. As you tasted the salt water, your mind went back to the tears that must have been shed by those ancient Israelites. And perhaps most importantly, as you taste of those cups of wine, those shared cups throughout the meal, your mind goes back to those promises of Yahweh. The promises that can be found back in Exodus. Exodus chapter 6. And so as to to place our mindset in the right place, if you would turn with me back to that passage. For it's valuable and helpful, I think, for us to understand that these are the words that these Israelites would have heard. These were the words that no doubt would have been echoing through the minds of the disciples themselves with each sip, with each taste. In Exodus chapter 6, you have these promises that stand as the foundation for the overall story. Those promises beginning in verse 6. Here we have God speaking to Moses, where he says, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of, from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. These promises were not simply part of some, some children's church story that an Israelite would have heard growing up. These promises defined who they were. 
these promises laid the foundation of, of their entire hope, of, of every ounce of meaning they found, for, for it represented, again, the summary, the summary promise in which God told the Israelites, you Israelites, you are my people, and I am your God. That is what defines you. And so you have to appreciate that, that with each taste of lamb, with each taste of bitter herbs, with each sip of wine, you are not just enjoying physical sustenance. Your mind is being taken back to that foundational story. You are being told in a vivid way, this is who you are. This is what truly matters. Your mind is going back to Egypt. You are joining alongside the Israelites as they flee from Egypt. And your mind is picturing that famous scene before Mount Sinai when you, as the people of Israel, for the first time, are confronted with Yahweh. For the first time, when you, when you have that covenant ratified, for the first time, when you hear the law and you understand this is what it looks like to be a people set after God. This is who you are, Israel. This is how you live. And so as you eat of these elements, of course, the purpose of it is to provide this powerful reminder. It's to cause you to, to in essence, re-experience the story, re-enter the story, remind yourself that you are one with these other Israelites. Remind yourself that this is everything. And as such, you can appreciate, no doubt, that the rich tradition this must have represented. And you can appreciate how joyful of a celebration that, that the Passover meal must have, at least in theory, represented. For this is a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness. It is a beautiful picture of, of their story. It is a beautiful reminder of, of that event, the exodus, that defines you. And yet, as beautiful as it is, it still is a bit incomplete, isn't it? For it would be hard to treat this Passover meal as, as only a, a mere celebration. That is to say, there, there had to be some bitterness still tied into it. For consider the Israelites that were living in the days of Jesus in Mark 14. While they certainly could, could see the faithfulness of God, while they certainly could understand that, yes, they had been delivered out of Egypt... And while they could remember the, the events of entering into the promised land and they could tell of the stories of their great kings, their great heroes, they still lived a life that, let's face it, fell far short of the promises of the Old Testament, didn't it? For all they were in this precious city, this ancient city of Jerusalem, they were there under the harsh, pagan, godless rule of the Roman Empire. While, yes, they had their own land, they were still paying taxes over to to Caesar. While they had experienced the faithfulness of God, it, it certainly had not been the, the abundant life that is spoken of throughout the prophets of old. Falls far short of that. You add to that the, the additional experiences of the disciples themselves, and you can only imagine how conflicted their, their hearts must be in this moment. For here you are a disciple of Jesus. Here you are having experienced that glorious triumphal entry, no doubt thinking, this is it. Jesus is going to take his spot. And then you hear Jesus continually talking about his impending crucifixion. And even here as you join together with your closest of friends to partake in this meal, you've just heard your, your teacher tell you that one of your closest friends is going to betray me. One of you actually isn't who you say you are. 
And so as you sit here at this table in the middle of this meal, you are confronted with this, with this reality that, that all is not well. This is not the life you had hoped to obtain, that, that it feels as if you are still trapped in that Exodus story. That even as an Israelite, you are still stuck in the wilderness. And so the Passover meal is this celebration in one way, but also it's a cry for deliverance. It's that which must force the people of God to, to once again return to Yahweh and, and ask if we are your people and you are your God, where's, where's the blessing? Where's our land? Where is this fulfillment? Where are you, God? Jesus no doubt could appreciate that feeling. He no doubt understood the, the level of conflicted thoughts that filled their minds. And yet here he is guiding them through it. Here he is picking up glasses of wine. Here he is clearly following the age-old traditions. And yet as he continues to follow those traditions, as he takes those same steps those disciples would have taken from childhood, no doubt, Jesus suddenly takes a very unexpected turn. And it is important for us, again, to appreciate just how shocking this turn must have been. For this is the meal as an Israelite. This is everything. And yet here towards the end of the meal, it is believed probably around the third cup, here Jesus suddenly goes off script. Here suddenly Jesus says, here's what this meal actually means. And here's the meal that really defines you. And it's at this point in time in verse 22 that you realize Jesus is no longer simply partaking in, in Passover with his disciples. Jesus is telling a new story. Jesus is giving a, a new identity. Jesus is creating this meal that while lacking in, in a, an amount of food certainly is so incredibly deep in its meaning. And as I hope we see, is a story that is far richer than any other story we could possibly enter into. Again, consider the words of this story as Jesus picks it up in Mark 14, reading verses 22 through 26. Once again, there we read, When they were eating, or while they were eating, he, Jesus, took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of thine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. In the middle of this familiar meal, Jesus takes two specific elements, and he redefines them. Those elements, of course, as we just saw, are the bread and the wine. Two things that already had their own meaning, and yet two elements that Jesus again redefines, re reinterprets. The first element, the bread, Jesus takes and he says, this is my body. Take, this, this is my body. This is not a reminder of the hurried way that the Israelites left Egypt. This is now my body. And at first glance, this imagery might seem a bit odd, although it is certainly nothing new to the Gospels. For we've seen Mark powerfully use the imagery of bread numerous times throughout the Gospel of Mark, I believe, to bring to mind the story of the Exodus. We specifically saw that back in Mark chapter 6 and 7, if you recall, where Jesus miraculously feeds the masses in the wilderness. As we discussed back then, we argued that in that image, Jesus is clearly being pictured as this new Moses, 
For just as Moses provided the Israelites with bread in the wilderness, so too does Jesus provide the masses with bread in the wilderness. And as we read those stories, we saw that it was clear that that Jesus was speaking of the fact that he ultimately was our provider. He ultimately is God. He ultimately is the one that takes care of us. And while that provision is certainly still at play here in Mark 14, verse 22 and 23, we see that the imagery takes takes a, a much more significant turn. For Jesus here isn't simply saying, here, I will provide for you. Jesus is saying, I am the provision. I am the bread. My body is being offered for you. Jesus then is taking this familiar element and he is saying this isn't just speaking of some past event. This is speaking directly to who I am. This is speaking to how I will provide for you. And in case the imagery is not clear enough, as we continue to read and see the second element, we we see Jesus does not mince words. He makes it very clear exactly what he is telling. For as we pick it back up again in verse 23, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never drink of the fruit of the vine again until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Really, it's in the second element that we see the imagery pick up. And it's in the second element where, especially to the Jews, it is impossible to miss what Jesus is saying about what it is he's accomplishing. For many of us, this imagery might sound a bit, a bit graphic, to be fair. It seems odd for Jesus to take a, a glass of wine that you're about to drink and say, this is my blood poured out for many. This no doubt was imagery that disturbed the Romans back in the early church days as they believed Christians were cannibals. That's how they took this language. But you have to remember again the audience to whom Jesus spoke. You have to remember the context in which this imagery is being painted for it is being painted in the midst of, of a meditation on the Passover. And when we understand that, and when you start looking back to the story of the Passover and the Exodus, you understand that Jesus is not simply offering some graphic, violent portrait of his death. He is speaking of the creation of a new covenant. You can see this picture numerous times throughout the Old Testament when you consider the the use of blood and sacrifices. And so, for instance, if you read back in Leviticus 4, you can see how blood was used in sacrifices for the removal of sins. That was a significant part of blood. But more importantly for our text, you also see in other passages that blood symbolized the the ratification, the, the creation of covenants between God and his people. Meaning, when God was establishing a new relationship with his people, there was a blood sacrifice. This was true in a a few different texts in the Old Testament, but most powerfully, for the sake of our time this morning, you see this if you turn back to Exodus chapter 24. Turn with me, if you will, back to Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus chapter 24, we've moved past the mere imagery of the Passover in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 24, we see that we are now brought to the scene at Mount Sinai. And so, if you go back and read the preceding verses and chapters, you will see the famous Ten Commandments given by Moses. You can read of the various laws that that Yahweh is giving his people, those laws again being a picture of, of what life with Yahweh looks like. And in Exodus 24, having given that that law to them, 
having provided that image to them, we see this picture that Jesus is alluding to in Exodus 24, picking it up in verse, we'll pick it up in verse 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of blood he sprinkled it on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. And he said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made for you in accordance with these words. You have to assume here, of course, that since the disciples had already actively been meditating on the Passover, that this image would not have been far from their minds. And so when Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, they understand, he's he's referencing the covenant that was placed between Moses and and the people. He's making reference to this practice that that Yahweh shared with, with our ancient Israelite brothers and sisters. He is claiming that he is starting something new. But of course, this immediately brings a challenge to mind. For the fact of the matter is, is that the covenant here in Exodus 24 was was ratified. This, This covenant has already taken place. And so Jesus must not be speaking simply to that covenant in Exodus 24. No, as the language suggests, Jesus is speaking of the establishment of some new covenant. Some new promise, some new sets of, or some new, new distinctions that now define the people of God and how they are to relate to Yahweh. And yet again, while this imagery and while this language might bypass those of us who, who did not have some exhaustive understanding of the Old Testament, we must remember again that the disciples, I think, would have had a very good understanding of what Jesus is referring to. For as great as the Old Covenant was, as significant as Moses and other leaders were of Israel, the Israelites understood that that old covenant had not provided everything they had hoped it would provide, for the people of God had been disobedient. So the land had been lost time and time again. The people continually strayed. And as you read through the Old Testament then, what you find is that in the middle of all their disobedience, as they continually strive to obey and yet then fall short, God sends his prophets and and speaks of this future covenant. And he tells them that you need something more than what was provided for you at Mount Sinai. You need a covenant that is greater than that which is ratified by blood at Mount Sinai. You need this this new covenant. And when you read passages that describe that new covenant, you again find language that, that uses the same imagery we already read earlier in Exodus. Most famously describing this new covenant, you can turn over to the prophet Jeremiah. And again, for the sake of appreciating the depth of Jesus' words, I I encourage you to turn to Jeremiah. For in Jeremiah chapter 31, you have this, this detailed account, this detailed picture of exactly what this covenant would provide. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 27, God makes clear exactly what we have been saying. In Jeremiah 31, 27, we find these words, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel 
and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast, as I've watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, we will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who sets sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Here is the passage we are trying to get to, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by hand and to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. And I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There again, you hear that language we read earlier. That language that that really characterized the four promises of God in Exodus 6. That same language is, is used here to characterize the promises that God is making in Jeremiah 31. And so for generations, the people of God were looking ahead to this covenant. For generations, the people of God would, would look ahead to this future reality when, when God would set up this new covenant, this new relationship. For they understood then and only then would they find the fulfillment of this grand promise that God would be their God, that they would be his people, that they would stay in that precious level of obedience and submission. With all that language in mind then, when we turn back to Mark chapter 14 and we hear Jesus very briefly say, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, you understand the, the depths that are contained in those very few words. For in that brief sentence, Jesus is saying, guys, this is it. All that was lacking in that former covenant, all that was lacking in your experience is finding its fulfillment here. And now, for I'm establishing this new relationship and I'm doing it not by the blood of of some Passover lamb. I'm doing it with my body, with my blood. And so just as he did with the bread, he, he hands this cup of wine to the disciples and he tells them, take this, drink of this. And as we see in other passages, we are told to do this in remembrance of him. And so while this second meal, that which we oftentimes call communion today, while this is lacking in the the fanfare of the Passover, while this is lacking in a, a large menu to say the least, in these two brief elements, we find a depth that no other meal could ever possibly obtain. We find a meaning that goes well beyond any meaning found in the Passover. We find a story that that outshines every other story we could possibly hope to enter into. And so just as the Israelites did for many generations, we as a church are commanded to take part in this meal. And as we do so, we are not simply eating a a cracker or drinking some juice as we do in our church. We are being called to to re-enter into that story. We're being told that as you taste of the bread, as you drink of the juice, your mind is being taken back to Jesus' own body being put on display and nailed to a cross. Your mind is going back to this imagery of Jesus with his disciples sharing this cup of wine with them and saying, this is my blood. As you partake in this meal, then you are doing that which every single believer before us has done since the foundation of the church. 
and you are being reminded of the fact that this is you, this is your identity. You are in Christ. And just as your brothers and sisters in Christ have done this for generations, so too you are called to do so as this constant act of remembering. Remembering that this is everything. It's a beautiful picture. And it ought to inspire joy in all of us. And yet so oftentimes, let's face it, when we gather together and join for for communion with each other, it hardly feels like a celebration. Oftentimes it feels more like we are sitting in a funeral service. For while we know we are doing something that is good, many of us think of upon the fact that, well, is this it? And we think of the sins that we still commit. We think of the struggles we still have. We look at the world around us and, and we can't help but wonder, okay, God, you said this is it. This is our grand story, but... But still, we can feel so much like those Israelites. It is easy to think that that we too are still in this story of the Exodus, that we too are still caught in this wilderness. And if not for the words of Jesus in verse 25, and if not for the story that follows in verses 26 through 31, our doubt, our struggle would be entirely justified. And yet, in these precious words, words that would be so easy to overlook, We find why this meal should always be cause for celebration. We find why this meal brings a level of certainty that no Passover meal could ever bring, that no holiday meal could ever establish. For in these verses, we see our story has a definite conclusion, a certainty that cannot be touched. For again, having given them the wine, we read, beginning in verse 25, Truly, I say to you, I will never drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Reading forward, we see that as they were walking, Jesus said to them, You all will fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. At first glance, it almost feels as if this last half of the story is entirely disconnected. But but I think it is so important to understand both the words of Jesus in verse 25 as well as the story that follows. For as Jesus finishes this meal, he adds this, this additional reference when he says, Truly I say to you, I will never drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Despite their level of sorrow, despite their level of confusion, Jesus says again, This is exactly what you've been hoping for. When Jesus makes reference to this future meal, he is not imagining some future communion service. He's imagining the fulfillment of the meal again that the people of God have been waiting for for generations. That meal was not simply the Passover of old. That meal is established and described throughout Scripture as as that great feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is a meal that you can read of in, in vivid detail in Old Testament prophets. Passages such as Isaiah 25 depict this future scene when the people of God will join with Yahweh in which there will be this grand celebration. It will be a party. It will be a feast. It will be that which eclipses any celebration here on earth. 
Jesus here picks up on that same imagery, and even as you turn to the end of our story in Revelation, you see the same imagery being picked back up again, describing that, that eventual celebration we have in heaven in Revelation chapter 19. Beginning in verse 6, John is given this vision where he says, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Picturing that end, he says, Let us rejoice and be glad, give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready, and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The Apostle John here in Revelation 19 is simply speaking of the reality that Jesus guarantees here in Mark 14. For just as Jesus declares, John says, this is the feast. This is the fulfillment. And and Jesus says, it is certain to take place. While it occurs through his own sacrifice, and while that is a difficult setting, Jesus says, truly I say to you, It's done. It's guaranteed, and I will not drink of this again until I drink it anew in the kingdom. And the implicit promise of the disciples here is, I will drink it and eat it with you. You will make it. You will make it to this grand ending. It is a beautiful promise, and yet, of course, if left there, it would be easy to question the level of certainty. For while Jesus makes this promise, let's face it, we are all far from from perfect in our faithfulness. And like the disciples or like the Israelites before us in the Old Testament, it might be tempting to think, well, what what if we fall short, Christ? What if we break the covenant? What if we break the promise? Well, will there not be need of a, of a new feast? Will there not be need of a, of a new covenant? This question is, is perfectly understandable, but again, this is where the story that follows in verses 27 through 31 is so helpful. For as Jesus is joined with his disciples, as they leave from this table and make their way out to the, the Mount of Olives, Jesus offers yet again a, a shocking word of revelation. And he tells them, disciples, you all will fall away. Every single one of you will sin in a way that, that is despicable. Every single one of us. We all will fall short. As Jesus says this, he He quotes this powerful message from from Zechariah 13. A passage in which God is is prophesying of his coming shepherd. And speaking of that shepherd's end, again, just as it is quoted here, he says, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. And no doubt at this point in time, it would be easy for the disciples to to think back to the, the revelation that Jesus already made. For this is not the first time Jesus has said that one of you will betray me. This is what we spoke of just last week, isn't it? For just a few verses before, Jesus, speaking of Judas, spoke of his betrayal. And we understand from other texts that at this point in time, Judas has left. He's no longer with them. He's gone to turn in Jesus. It's easy to look at Judas and say, what a traitor. It's easy to look at Judas and say how he could do this, but... But as Jesus continues to go with his disciples, he in essence says, you're all going to do the same thing. But there's something different here, isn't there? It's fascinating. Judas betrays Christ and he goes to hell. He's judged. Woe to you, Judas. The disciples sin. And what does Jesus say? I'll go before you. You'll fall. You'll sin. 
but don't worry. I go ahead of you to Galilee. I go ahead of you to Galilee, and as we'll see later, we understand this is Jesus saying, come join me. This is Jesus saying, despite the fact that you are scattered, despite the fact that you sin, I am still your Savior. My blood still covers you, and so you are then able to come join me and still be considered my children, still be considered my disciples, still be considered as, as having a rightful spot at the table in that future feast. This, of course, begs the question of, well, how is this possible, Jesus? Why does the sin of Judas lead to hell and the sin of the disciples lead to, to the continued faithfulness of God? Well, it's quite simple, isn't it? The disciples have, have taken part in the blood. The disciples are covered by the covenant. The disciples are covered by this sacrifice. The same is true for you and me. Assuming, of course, that you've placed your faith in Jesus. And the picture of, of communion here, then, the picture of this, of this story, then, is this level of certainty that, that is so precious and so easy to overlook. For so very often times, I, perhaps like you, have sat in the pews over the course of my life and I've, I've eaten of the bread and I've, I've drank of the juice and, and I've thought, oh, woe is me, for I am a shameful sinner, Christ. Surely I've disappointed you. Surely I am undeserving of your love and, and perhaps I have fallen out of your favor. And many people come to communion with that that spirit of shame and heartache. And yet, while we must truly be repentant and sorrowful over sin, the message of communion is not a message of sorrow. The message of communion is a certain promise. It's the promise that Jesus has gone ahead before us. It's a promise that if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you are covered by his blood, you are purified, and you are declared the people of God. You are declared just as righteous as any apostle that has come before us. You are declared just as precious as any other saint in the history of the church. And Jesus is promising to you that someday you will join him just as the disciples will join him, just like the church will join him at that precious table in Revelation. And there we will feast. There we will experience the ultimate fulfillment of the precious promise that is being told to us every single time we take communion. But of course, the question we must ask ourselves is, are we in the story? Is this your identity? Is it my identity? And so as we consider all these things, it is important to take seriously just, just the, the depth, the, the challenge that this passage brings before us. And perhaps you're here this morning and you know you've never placed your faith in Jesus. There are no doubt numerous individuals in here who have not bowed your knee before Jesus Christ as your king. Please do not mistake this morning as, as a promise that you will join with him at the feast. Understand that this is not your identity. You, in reality, are outside in the darkness where there's gnashing of teeth and weeping. But you're invited to join us. You simply have to respond in faith. You place your trust in Jesus and you are welcome into the banquet hall. You are welcome into the joyful celebration, but you simply must repent of your sin and believe in Jesus as the king of the kingdom. And so I beg you this morning, unbeliever, take of Jesus. Bow before him, place your trust in him. If you have any questions, please let me know. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ, 
Let us rejoice in the reality that is set before us. No doubt many of us have heard the the details of communion countless times, and you have taken part in communion countless times to the point where, where you can take part of that cracker, drink that little glass of juice, and think nothing of it. But let us delight in the wealth that is provided in those two simple elements. Let us think back to the body of Christ that was hung on a cross for us with every taste of that cracker. With that taste of juice as it hits our lips, let us remember the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us. And as we enjoy that, let us remember that we do so as a unified body of Christ and that regardless of the differences we might have here or with other believers in Christ and other churches, that we look forward to the day in which we will all be joined together forever at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Let us delight in that reality. Let us strive to re-enter into that story daily. Let us take advantage of those moments when we have communion. And let us do that which Jesus is commanding. Let us live constantly in anticipation of that kingdom. For that is your story and that is your definite end. If you are simply covered by the blood. Let us close our time in prayer. Father in heaven. God, I confess it is so easy to overlook the depth of meaning that is found in something as simple as a cracker and some juice. But God, we see those elements blessed by the Son of God himself. And so might we never be guilty of partaking in that meal with with a callous attitude, but might we always approach it with a spirit of thanksgiving, a spirit of hope. Might we take part in that rejoicing in the fact that we've been covered by the blood of your son Jesus and that through his blood a new covenant has been ratified through his blood we are guaranteed our future inheritance God obviously not everyone in here is part of that inheritance and we know that your word tells us that there will be many who are left out in the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth but I pray that might not be the case here I pray God that you open up the eyes of the lost here this morning. I pray, God, that as they've heard the gospel presented in the baptisms, as they see the gospel vividly in communion in this text, might they have their eyes open to their need of you, and might you save them from their sin now, God. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, might this be a precious reminder of our story. And as we enter into this holiday season, regardless of whether it is a time of mourning or a time of celebration, might we remember that ultimately the only story that matters is this story of the covenant. Might we place all of our meaning and all of our hope in that. And might we remember that someday we will be with Jesus. Jesus, please come again soon. Please make this real to us now. As we await for your coming, Jesus, might we live in constant obedience, remembering this is what it looks like to be the people of God. Might we strive to be proper reflections of that daily. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you. In Jesus Christ's name, we pray all these things. Amen.